Yeah, good. Great to see you, all of you who are in the room. And of course, like Colin said, those of you who are joining us on live stream, I want to extend a very special welcome to you. And I do just want to reiterate, if you're a guest with us, if it's your first time here, it's your first time back in a while, uh, we just want to extend a very, very special welcome to you. We hope that you feel welcome as a guest because you are, and we're just, we're so, so glad you're able to be with us. But I do want to just tell you that if you are just joining us, you're actually catching us in the fourth week of a five-week series that we've been calling Neighboring. So you're kind of catching us in the, in the midst of a conversation we've been having over the past several weeks. So to catch you up, uh, what we're doing in this series called Neighboring is, is really this whole series has been centered on uh, something called the Great Commandment. And my guess is a lot of you guys might be familiar with the Great Commandment, but if you're not familiar with the Great Commandment, the Great Commandment it actually refers to a very famous response that Jesus gave to a very important question. And so on one occasion, there was a person who came up to Jesus, and they just asked him, they said, hey, what is the greatest commandment? You know, there's a lot of commandments that are in the Bible. The Bible says a lot of stuff. Can you distill it down? What is the most important? What is the greatest of all the commandments? And what I think is so cool is that Jesus actually provided an answer to that question. And here's what Jesus said famously in Matthew 22. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus responds, and basically he says, here's the greatest commandment. It's this, it's love. The greatest commandment is to love. And it's kind of a two-dimensional love. It's a vertical love. It's a love for God, to love God with every fiber of your being. And as you do that, it spills over into your horizontal relationships with your neighbors, with the people who are actually around you. And so here's what we said. We said, this is the most important thing, according to Jesus, the most important commandment. So in this series, we said, hey, here's our desire. Our desire in this series is to teach, to encourage, to inspire, to equip and release the people of our church to live out the great commandment in our everyday lives. So really, this series has been a very practical pursuit. And in many ways, it's been a very literal pursuit of loving our neighbors. And we said, hey, what if we just actually got very practical and very serious about taking steps to love our neighbors, like our actual neighbors, like the people who live around us, like the people that we go to school to, like the people that we run into at work, the people who are in our natural daily lives. What if we took that real serious? And so we've been talking very practically about that. So just a quick recap. In week one, we said, if we're gonna get serious about the great commandment, we first probably better start by defining who is our neighbor. If we're supposed to love our neighbor, let's first talk about who is that. And so we actually looked at Jesus's uh, answer to that very question in week one. Week two, we said, if we're gonna get serious about the great commandment, we should probably talk about what does love require? What does it actually mean, practically mean, to take steps of loving our neighbors? So we actually added some clarity to that. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Kevin did an awesome job, and we had a chance to talk about the importance of hospitality. And we said, if we truly are people who love God, one of the ways the love of God works itself out of us is through hospitality. And so we had a chance to talk about that. And let me just say that if you missed those conversations, I would really encourage you to go back. You can watch those, listen to those, catch those on our podcast or app or website. We'd love for you to do that. So here's what we're going to do this week in week four. What I want to do is I actually want to take our, our time that we have here, and I want to discuss a critical aspect of this whole conversation that if you've been with us, maybe has been coming in your mind throughout this series. So I want to talk about something that if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, maybe has been kind of bouncing around a little bit in the back of your mind. And quite honestly, what I want to talk about, I believe, is a potential point of confusion and can even be a potential point of maybe tension as it relates to this idea of loving God 
and loving other people. You may be saying, what are you talking about? What is the tension that you're referring to? Well, let me see if I can put the tension to you in, uh, in the way of a question. So let me see if I can pose it to you this way. So here's the question I want to think through a little bit together today. Should followers of Jesus love their neighbors so that their neighbors might become followers of Jesus? And like I said, I think, I think that this is a tension that maybe for some of us has come up in our mind. For, we're talking about loving God and we're talking about loving others, right? And so I think the tension is, do, do those of us who follow Jesus, should followers of Jesus love our neighbors with the hope that our neighbors would become followers of Jesus? Should we love our neighbors so that hopefully it leads to a place where they can, where our neighbors might be in, in, invited to follow Jesus? Now, again, I think that you can feel the tension. Even when I say it, this question, for some of you, there might even be an inner dilemma that's going in, on inside of you because um, the truth is that if we say that there's a goal behind our love, if we say that there's, there's an objective or there's an agenda to the good things that we're doing to the people around us, doesn't that seem disingenuous? And doesn't that seem a little insincere? Um, I think it can feel that way. Doesn't it kind of feel like, here, here's a good term, like an ulterior motive? Uh, my guess is we're all familiar with the term ulterior motive, but just to give more clarity, here's a definition. An ulterior motive is something that's intentionally kept concealed. It's when we do or say one thing out in the open, but then we intend or mean something else in private. Oftentimes, an ulterior motive is kind of manipulative. And I think all of us, we all know what that feels like, right? We know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a relationship that we sense that there's an ulterior motive. We've all had it happen. Have you guys ever had this happen where uh, a new friend or acquaintance asks you to get coffee because they want to catch up on life? And then you sit down, and within a couple minutes of the conversation, they can't wait to tell you about an exciting business opportunity of a lifetime. And you're like, oh, okay, I see what this is about. That was an ulterior motive. There was a secret agenda behind why you invited us. And so I think the question is, is that what Christians are supposed to be like? Right? Is there, are there strings attached to uh, are the, good, the good things that we, to the, good, to the ways that we try to love people? Is there something up our sleeve in that? In fact, let me just say this. If you're a person who's not a follower of Jesus here today or watching online, if you're someone who's investigating Christ, quite honestly for you, this might be one of the biggest issues that you have with us Christians. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, that's exactly it. You know, it's fine that you believe what you believe and it's, it's great that you believe, but why are you Christians always trying to convert me? Why is it that it just seems like you're always trying to tell me about your faith? And can't we just agree that you can believe what you believe and I can believe what I believe and we can just leave each other alone? And why do we need to push it? And for some of you, quite honestly, that might be one of your biggest struggles that you have with Christianity. I'll tell you what I thought was interesting. In my uh, research for this, uh, this week's talk, I actually came across this study that was done by Barna Research, Barna Research Group back in 2019. And it was all about evangelism. And here's what they found was really interesting. They actually found that today, almost half of practicing Christians, Christian, Christian millennials, so young Christians, say that evangelism is wrong. So about half of young Christians today would say that's actually wrong. It's not a good thing to share your faith. And so you have that. But then on the other hand, some of you might be thinking, yeah, yeah, but doesn't, doesn't following Jesus, isn't that supposed to include sharing our faith? I mean, doesn't the Bible say something about how like, Jesus wants us? Shouldn't we want to share our faith? And so I think the tension looks something like this, right? Should followers of Jesus love their neighbors so that their neighbors might become followers of Jesus? Or 
Should followers of Jesus love their neighbors and keep their faith private and quiet? So one of those things. Now, I'm trying to draw the tension out a little bit, but my hope is that in our time today, that what we'll discover is I believe, I actually believe from a biblical vantage point, both of these options present some very serious problems. But I do believe that as we think about the idea of loving God and loving our neighbors, I think that there's a need for some clarity as it relates to the tension that we just talked about. So where do we get clarity from? Well, one, one of the places I believe that gives us a great amount of clarity on this is actually in the Gospel of John chapter 4. So I want to invite you, if you would, why don't you grab your Bibles with me, and if you would open them up, we're going to go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Uh, page, eight, eight, uh, page 862 is where you're going to find that in the Bibles that are under the chairs. So if you need to use one of our Bibles, feel free to do that. If you do not own a Bible, a physical copy of the Bible, you can have one of ours. We'd love for you to take that home with you. We'd love for you to read it. So John Here, you would have the Jewish region of Galilee. And so this was the Jewish community, uh, largely a fishing community. It was right on the Sea of Galilee. And then down south here in Judea, you had another Jewish community. This is actually where Jerusalem was, where the temple would be. So you had a Jewish community in the south, you had a Jewish community in the north, and then right in between, sandwiched in between, you had this one neighbor, and it was the Samaritans. All right? Now, if you were with us over the past couple of weeks, then you might remember we talked a little bit about the Samaritans. The Jewish people, the Jews and the Samaritans, had a long-standing, deep-rooted tension that existed between the two of them. In fact, it was a 500-year-old tension by the time that Jesus came around. And actually, one of the things that you learn in the Bible is that it was the Jewish people specifically who looked down upon the Samaritans. They viewed the Samaritans as lesser than the Jewish people. And so the Bible's going to tell us this. The Bible's going to say that Jesus is here. He's in Judea. He needs to go up here to the Sea of Galilee. Now, it would make sense that the most direct route would be to go right through Samaria. That's, that seems like it would be the most, you know, um, kind of, uh, the, the, it would make the most sense to go that way. However, back in this time, because of the tension that existed, most Jews would go around. They would avoid Samaria altogether. But the Bible's going to tell us something really interesting in verse 4. So look what it says in verse 4. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
He had to go through Samaria. That's actually a really interesting term. And the original language that the Bible is translated in, which is Greek, what's translated from is Greek, the word had literally means that this is a matter of necessity. He had to go through Samaria. I actually really appreciate it. Some of you guys had the King James Version, the old King James Version. I actually really like the way the King James Version says it. It says this, and he, Jesus, must needs go through Samaria. Isn't that interesting? Must? I've never heard anyone say that before. So uh, quick homework assignment for you this week. I want you to say must needs at some point, right? I must needs cheese curds. We must needs go to Culver. I don't know, whatever. So, um, so Jesus had to go to Samaria. And why did he have to go? Well, I think we're going to see it. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So I want you to notice in these couple of verses, um, we actually have a good amount of context. It's helping us kind of set up the scene. So notice the Bible's going to say that he was in a particular place called Sychar. So in Samaria, there's a town called Sychar. And more than that, he actually tells us specifically where Jesus is at. He was at the place of Jacob's well. Now, this well is actually a, a, uh, is a very, very, very famous and historical well. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis where we see this well. And what's interesting is you can actually go and visit this well even to this day. I actually show a picture of it to you. This is, this is the well. Uh, they have since built an entire church around it, but this is the well. It's a very deep well. It's about uh, 100 feet deep. And uh, interestingly, I thought this was cool. This is one of the most historically and archaeologically well-established, pun completely intended on that one. It is one of the most archaeologically and historically well-established biblical locations uh, that we have. And so basically, archaeologists are like, yeah, this is where it would have happened. This is the well. That the, and and I, what's crazy is it's actually still an active well. So if you go visit, they'll still offer you a cup of water that you can drink right from that well. So it's kind of neat. So the Bible's going to tell us Jesus is at this well. One other quick detail. Notice it's going to tell us that it's about noon. Now, that's actually important. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to that here in just a second. So here's Jesus. He's at this well, the heat of the day, right? Broad daylight. And the Bible says that while he's here, a person comes to the well. Jesus, a certain person, comes to the well. Here's what it says in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone to the town to buy food. So the Bible's going to kind of tell us, it gives us this indication that it's just Jesus. His disciples aren't with him. And most likely, it's just this woman. It's just the two of them. What's fascinating is the Bible tells us that this person who meets Jesus at the well is a Samaritan woman. She is a Samaritan woman. Now, I just want to kind of tell you, as we continue uh, throughout this passage, I want you to observe and take note how many times John, the gospel writer, I want you to take note how many times he mentions that this woman is a Samaritan and that this Samaritan is a woman. It's actually pretty incredible. My count I counted five times in this short story. John tells us that this woman is a Samaritan and nine times he tells us that this Samaritan is a woman. So he wants us to know this woman is a Samaritan and the Samaritan is a woman. So what gives? Why is that so important? Can I just tell you what I believe? Here's what I think. I believe that the gospel writers, in fact, all the biblical writers for that matter, but I think the gospel writers were totally brilliant. 
and the way that they told their stories and the way that they recounted these events. And I believe that the reason that John focuses on the details that he focuses on is for an intentional reason. I think he's actually trying to make a deliberate point. And some of you might be saying, what's the point that he's trying to make? Well, let let me kind of give you a little bit more context. So John chapter four, you see Jesus has an interaction with the woman at the well. One chapter before this, in John chapter three, you actually see Jesus have another encounter with another person. Some of you may have heard of it. It's an encounter with a guy named Nicodemus. So what do we know about Nicodemus? Well, if you've never read the story, here's what you know about Nicodemus, just a few fast facts. We know that Nicodemus, first off, was named Nicodemus, so we're told his name. We're told that he was Jewish. The Bible's going to tell us that Nicodemus was a Jewish person, and more than that, he was a Jewish man. And even more than that, we're told that he is a member of something called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin back in that time was like the ruling council among the Jewish people. This was a, would have been a place of high notoriety, right? And on top of all of that, we also see that he comes to Jesus veiled in darkness. He comes to Jesus at night. Now, what's interesting is you, you read John chapter three and then right afterwards you get into John chapter four and you're introduced to another character, this woman. And what do we know about her? Well, here's what we know. First off, we never know her name. It never gives her a name. We're never told what her name is. John never clues us in on that detail. She's a Samaritan, not a Jew. And as I told you, the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jewish people. She was a woman, not a man, which some of you guys know back in ancient times, especially in the first century in Middle Eastern culture, uh, women are oftentimes degraded. So she's a woman, not a man. Not only that, you're gonna discover here in a minute, she's an immoral woman. So because of some of the decisions that she's made and because of her past, we're gonna find out that she is not a person of notoriety. She is not a person who's viewed as someone who's a good person in society. But what's interesting is she actually meets Jesus at noon in broad daylight. What's the point? Nicodemus was on the socially acceptable side of every issue of his day. He was a Jew, not a Samaritan. He was a man, not a woman. He was a person who, had, who, who, would, have, who would have been considered someone who had notoriety, and she wasn't, right? And the woman was on the wrong side of every social, social issue of her day. You could not get more inside than Nicodemus, and you could not get more outside in that time than the Samaritan woman. What's the point that John's making? You guys, I think it's all on purpose. I think what John is trying to help us see is that that regardless, regardless of status or external appearances, Jesus engages them both. And Jesus invites, is inviting to them both. And what's interesting is that you're actually gonna see that Nicodemus leaves his encounter with Jesus veiled in darkness at night. The woman ends her encounter with Jesus, and we're about to see this, running into a town in broad daylight, telling everybody about Jesus. So the question is, what happened to her? What happened to her? And this is what we're about to read. So let's see what happened to her. Here's what it says. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, uh, Jesus said to her, so notice Jesus started the conversation. He said, will you give me a drink? The surprise, the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So you can see it's almost like Jesus starts this conversation and she's like shocked. And it's almost like she's like, do you know who you're talking to right now? And I love it because in the next verse, Jesus is like, do you know 
who you're talking to. Because look, look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew, if you knew, now watch this, the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, then you would ask him to give you the gift, a gift, a free gift. And the gift that he would give you is living water. Now, of course, you guys know this. Jesus was a rabbi. And rabbis oftentimes talked, spoke in allegories. It's kind of a common, parables and allegories. They would speak in those ways. So when Jesus is talking about living water, what he's talking about is something much more than physical thirst. Right? What he's actually talking about, and you guys can probably pick up on it, He's talking about soul satisfaction. He's talking about a deeper satiation of the soul. That's what he's talking about. But of course, you know, she's just, this is the first time she's meeting him, so she's not picking up on that. So she responds to him. She says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She's like, you don't even have a bucket. So where are you going to get this living water that you're talking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So, uh, by, by the way, I want to just focus on a little detail that I think is helpful. Um, when Jesus said to her that he was going to give her living water, and then when she responds back and speaks about living water, there's actually a way that that term was used back in Jesus' time that I think is helpful. So, in the first century, when you talked about living water, there actually was two kinds of water. You could think about it this way. There was living water, and living water was basically moving water. It was water that was rushing or was moving in a river or a spring. They would call that living water. It was a source of water. That was kind of the idea. So living water was different than water that you would gather yourself. So you could gather water in a bucket or in a cistern. Like they would have these big cisterns that they would fill with water. And they would call that static. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me. Then look what God calls himself, the spring of living water. He says, and they have dug their own cisterns, their own places for water, broken cisterns that can't hold water. Now, some of you are like, what is Jeremiah talking about? Okay, well, here's what I think is going on. I think what Jeremiah is saying is what God is saying through the prophet of Jeremiah is that before every single one of us, there lies two options. Option one is that we can go to God. We can go to him, the source of living water, to satisfy and satiate the deepest longings and needs and thirsts of our soul. We all have that. We all have a hunger and a thirst that's deeper and beyond even our own comprehension that exists within us. And we can go to God for those things. We can turn to God to be the one who will fill those things for us. We can turn to his will. We can turn to his word. We can turn to his way. We can submit ourselves to those. Or, I think Jeremiah's gonna say, you can actually go to yourself. And you can try to look to yourself to fill those inner thirsts that you have. You can, by your own efforts and through your own pursuits, 
You can try to fill and satiate those thirsts within yourself through your own means apart from God's way. I think that's what he's talking about here. I think what what Jeremiah is saying is the attempts that we do, all of our attempts to try to fulfill those desires within ourselves are like broken cisterns. They're broken cisterns. They don't hold water that well and they don't hold water that long. And eventually they're just gonna leave you thirsty again. They're gonna leave you dry again. I love what C.S. Lewis calls it. C.S. Lewis calls it an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. You just have to keep coming back for more and keep coming back for more, but it leaves you thirsty and thirsty and thirsty and thirsty. And I think this is why Jesus says in verse 13, he said, everyone who drinks this water is gonna be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them, it will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water that wells into eternal life. See what Jesus says? He says, those who come to me will receive living water that will never make you thirsty. But not only that, not only will it quench your deepest thirst, but it will well up inside of you and overflow, overflow into the lives of those around you. So she responds to this, verse 15. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So I think she's still, she still doesn't quite figure out what Jesus is talking about, but she likes this idea of, of never being thirsty again. And so she's like, please, if there's any way that I can avoid coming to this well every single day, just give me that water. That's what I want. So I think that Jesus sees that she's not quite picking up on what he's saying. And so what he does next is awesome. Jesus takes the direct approach. And here's what Jesus says to her. So Jesus said to her, he told her, "Um, go and call your husband and come back. Go and call your husband. Now, I can't help but wonder if to this woman, this might have seemed like a sudden and abrasive point in the conversation. They're just talking about water, and all of a sudden, he's like, go get your husband. But I believe that what Jesus is doing here, and I think you'll see this, I think what he's doing is absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Jesus says, "Um, go and get your husband. Look at her response. I have no husband, she replied. I have no husband. Pretty pretty brief. I have no husband. Now, what you're going to find out is that's what she's saying is true. It's true, but it's partially true. There's a whole bunch she's leaving out in her response. And, and I want you to also notice there's a lot of overtones on what's going on here. I don't know exactly why she said this the way she said this. I'm not quite sure. But can I tell you that commentators, biblical commentators, have a couple of different opinions. I think that they're both really interesting. Here's one opinion. Some people believe that by saying, I have no husband, what this woman was basically saying to Jesus is, I'm available. So Jesus is like, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have one. And Jesus is like... So you're, so you're telling me there's a chance. Like that kind of thing. And, um, which, by the way, that's plausible. It's very plausible. And, and if that's the case, if that is the case, I think what it reveals to us is that this woman probably didn't know how to interact with men aside from interacting with them sexually. You know, and that's true sometimes. Sometimes if you come from a past where you've experienced sexual trauma or you experience sexual abuse or even sexual brokenness, Sometimes it's hard to know how to interact with people aside from sexual experiences. So that's very, very possible. Uh, However, there's another idea. Some commentators believe that when she says, I have no husband, she's just trying to dodge it. She doesn't want to talk about it. Jesus is touching on a particularly difficult and painful part of her life, and she just wants to change the topic. So either way, it could be either one of those. I, I love what Jesus says to her next. She's like, I have no husband. Now, watch Jesus. So Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. You're correct. 
In fact, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Now, I, I gotta be honest with you. I've been reading this and I was like, I wish I could have seen Jesus. I don't know how Jesus said these words. I wish I was there. I wish I could see it. But in my imagination, I mean, I don't think Jesus said it in a congratulatory tone. Like, I think it was like, you're right. I don't know if it was that. Uh, but I don't think it was condemning either. And Jesus somehow points out, but notice what he says to her. He says, you're right. He says, in fact, you've had, you've had five husbands. You've had five. Now, remember, this is the first century. Now, things were a lot more conservative back then. Man, five husbands is a lot of husbands today. That's a lot of husbands. And he's like, and the, and the man that you're with is not your husband. You guys, what is Jesus doing here? What is he doing? Do you see it? He is, what Jesus is doing here is brilliant. Jesus is moving past the topic of physical thirst and he is pointing to her deeper thirst. What's Jesus doing? He's going, you're thirsty, aren't you? You're thirsty. And the well that you keep coming back to is relationships. The place you keep coming is to men. And you've been back again, and you've been back again, and you've been back again. I think what Jesus is saying, and hey, trend analysis seems to indicate that it's leaving you thirsty time and time again. Yeah, I think that gives us a lot of insight as to why she's probably there at noon. Uh, commentators will point out, I think this is actually a really good point, they'll point out that back in this time for women to go to the well, it was a very social activity to get water. And they would often go when it was cool. So in the morning or in the evening, in the cool of the day. So the fact that this woman is here by herself at noon tells us that she was probably either ostracized by the women in that community or she was alienating herself from them because she didn't feel like she fit in with them or because of her guilt or because of whatever. But when Jesus comes to her, I think what he's doing here, you guys, I think that he's pressing in on something and he's saying, listen, you're thirsty. And the well that you're going to time and time again is men. And I think it's almost like Jesus is saying, how's that going for you? How's that working? And I think maybe for some of us here today, for all of us here watching online, I think maybe we need to ask ourselves, how's it going for us? Because here's the truth, knowingly or unknowingly, Every single one of us has a deeper thirst that lies within us. We all have it. It's a thirst for acceptance. It's a thirst to be loved. It's a thirst to feel valuable and to feel valued. It's a thirst to feel like your life matters, like you have purpose, like you have significance, like, like what you're living for is actually going to make some kind of, we all have some thirst inside of us. And the truth is, is that sometimes we can turn to God for those things or we can try to seek to satiate those on our own. And sometimes we'll turn to things like career or achievement. We'll turn to things like sex or the pursuit of wealth. We'll turn to things like substances or, 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 or escapism or pleasure. We'll turn to a million different things. Things that, by the way, are sometimes good things, but we make them ultimate things. And we go to them and they leave us hungry over and over and over again. Right? The question is, how's it going for you? How's it going for us? How's it working? Is it actually fulfilling us? Or like C.S. Lewis said, is it an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure? So Jesus pushes into her most vulnerable and exposed place. But you guys, I don't think he does that because he's trying to exploit her. 
Jesus is far too kind for that. I think the reason that Jesus points to that place of hurt in her heart is because he's trying to reveal to her what he has to offer. He has to offer living water, living water. And I think, I think, it, I think all of a sudden it makes sense why Jesus must needs go to Samaria. Why did he have to go? Here's why. He had a divine appointment with a thirsty soul. He had to go and he had the living water. And so I love her response, by the way. Jesus is like, you're right. You've had five husbands and the guy you're with is not your husband. <laughs> Look at her response. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, there's something special. I don't know how you do that. That's crazy. And she's just blown away. And so they, they end up getting in this further conversation. They actually start talking about spiritual things. But then eventually in verse 25, I love what she says. The Bible says, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. You know, and I can't help but reading this, that by this point, my guess is she's probably a pretty smart lady. And I'm guessing she's probably figured out who she's talked to. So she's like, you know, one day the Messiah is going to come, you know, and uh, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. And, and I love Jesus' response. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am such powerful words, the first I am statement in the entire Gospel of John. The I am statements are these theologically rich statements about who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I am he. And I love her response. It says in verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and she said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way towards him. Man, there's so many cool things in this verse. One of the first things you'll notice, the Bible's going to say that she left her water jar behind. And, uh, you know, a lot of people point out that John probably left that little detail in there almost as a symbolic gesture of saying she has now found living water. She doesn't need a bucket anymore. And look what the Bible's going to say. Now that she's found Jesus, she has one interaction with Jesus, and the Bible's going to say now she can't be quiet about it. So she runs into the town, and she's telling everyone about this Jesus. Now, I just want you to think about this with it for a minute. Here's a woman who is on the wrong side of every social issue of her day. Here's a woman who apparently has went to great lengths to avoid the people that are in the town and the women who are in the town. And now she has one encounter with Jesus and she is now running back into the town that she has been trying to avoid to tell people about Jesus. And so the question is, what in the world would cause someone to do that? What would cause you to do that? For that kind of transformation to take place that quickly, what could do that? Can I tell you what I believe it is, you guys? She had an encounter with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's what happens when you have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a transformation that happens in her. I believe that there are two truths that gripped her heart at the same time. And the first truth was this. She met the Messiah. She met her creator. And he saw her all the way down to the bottom. He saw her in her guilt, in her shame, in her brokenness. You see what she just said? She said, come meet a man. He told me everything I ever did. These people knew who she was. So my guess is when she's like, he told me everything, they're like, everything? And she's like, everything. And they're like, about Bill and Jim and Cletus and Festus and Billy Joe and I don't know where I'm getting these names from. You talk... And she's like, everything, he knew me, he knows everything about me. 
all the dysfunction. In fact, he doesn't even know just about the men. He knows about the reason behind the thing of why it is that I'm doing that. He knows the motivations in my heart that I'm not even aware of. He sees me to the bottom. But the second thing is she's like, and he loves me to the skies. He's offering me living water. He knows me fully. And he has loved me completely. And you guys, when you are touched with that kind of grace, it transforms you. And like Jesus said, it becomes not just water to satiate your, your thirsts. It becomes a well that springs out of you. You can't stop talking about it. You can't stop talking about it. Isn't it interesting when you read this story, do you notice that her greatest point of pain and shame actually becomes the most compelling part of her testimony and her story? That's what happens when when God's grace touches you. The parts of your story that are the most painful and the most embarrassing and the most broken become the greatest places and testimonies of God's grace. It's an amazing thing that happens. And so now let me just go back. After this whole story, how does any of this shed light on the question that we asked before? So guys, remember at the beginning, should followers of Jesus love their neighbors so that their neighbors might become followers of Jesus? Or should followers of Jesus love their neighbors and keep their faith private and quiet? Well, you guys, I think behind both of these suggestions, these ideas, I think there's actually a, uh, a couple of basic beliefs that we see that exist in our midst today. In our society, I think there's a couple of basic beliefs. And they go something like this. You'll hear people say things like this. You shouldn't tell other people about your faith. No one should tell each other about each other. It should be private. And no one can claim that their truth is truer than another. So we hear these these kind of statements all, all the time. And by the way, I think at face value, it sounds very polite. It sounds like a very civil way to live. But I do think that if you just stop for a moment and just think about it, which I want to invite you to do, if you just think about it for a moment, I think you're going to see that, that first off, that, it's, it's, that these statements are first off logically inconsistent. But then secondly, I think you're also going to see, more importantly, they are lovingly inconsistent. So logically inconsistent. What do I mean? Well, let's just take this one. No one can claim that their truth is truer than another. Aren't you, when you say that, aren't you by saying that, actually doing the very thing that you're condemning. So if I say, hey, no one can make an ultimate truth claim, and if you make an ultimate truth claim, you're wrong. Is that not an ultimate truth claim? So I'm just saying it's logic, it's just logically inconsistent. But more importantly than that, it's lovingly inconsistent. It's loving, now you, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, let's just say you are dying of thirst, physical thirst. You're dying of physical thirst. And let's say that I have water. It would be lovingly inconsistent for me not to offer you the very thing that I believe you need the most. How how dare I ignore your thirst? How dare I criticize your thirst? If I really love you, I have to offer you. Now, here's what I think this passage is telling us. I think what Jesus is basically saying is, listen, if you're thirsting, if you're thirsting spiritually, if there's a deeper thirst, if you're thirsting, for example, for things like a meaning, a meaning in life amidst real suffering. If you're longing, if you're thirsting.
love that we all feel in this life. Here's what Jesus is saying. For such thirsts, there is living water. Jesus is the one who has come to quench these thirsts. So I think what we have to see, you guys, is there is a difference between an ulterior motive and an ultimate expression. It's a really great book that's out right now called to, uh, to Transform a City by Eric Swanson and Sam Williams. And I like what they said. They said an ultimate motive means that we absolutely want every person on earth to be in a right relationship with God through Jesus. In the same way that God does not desire any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But an ulterior motive means that we do acts of love and service towards others so that they'll become Christians, which would signify that if they don't become Christians, we stop loving and serving. It's important to remember that we don't engage in the needs and the dreams and the pains of our communities so that they will become Christians. Rather, we do so because we are Christians. So back to the question, should followers of Jesus love their neighbors so that their neighbors might become followers of Jesus? I think the answer is no. I think a better way to say it would be this. We don't love our neighbors so that our neighbors might become followers of Jesus. We love our neighbors because we are, because we follow Jesus who loves what about this then? Should followers of Jesus just love their neighbors then and keep quiet about their faith? I think the answer is no. I think that's lovingly inconsistent. I think a better way to say it would be this. Sharing our faith is not motivated by an ulterior motive. No way. But it is an ultimate expression of our love. If he is the living water, if he truly is the living water, then it would be lovingly inconsistent for me to not desire that for another. I'm asking the band to come up and as they do, I just want to end our time by, I just would like to address two audiences and then I'd love to pray for us and then we're, we're finished. So let me, let me just speak first to those who are followers of Jesus. So if you're someone who would say, I am a disciple of Christ, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm Christian. So let me just speak first to us. I think this whole conversation should hopefully add some clarity, but I also think that it should cause us to stop and maybe even search our own motives of why it is that we do or do not share our faith. I think it's important to, to look at if the reason that we do or we do not share our faith is because of guilt or fear, or if what's, what motivates us is a sense of duty or obligation or achievement. I think we need to repent of those things. I think we need to go back to the great commandment. We love the Lord our God and we love others. And it must be an ultimate expression of the love that we have. You know, I would just tell you that one of the ways that we pursue that together as a church, one of the ways we cultivate that love and we pursue that love is something you may have heard of. It's called Pray for Your Three. If you've never heard of this, um, Pray for Your Three, there's actually sticker, free stickers and free bracelets that are out in the cafe. They're all just reminders for those of us who are part of Grace to be praying for our three. You might be saying, who's that? It's three people who you know that you're praying for by name, on a regular basis, that they would come and, come and know and follow Jesus. We call it praying for our three. I want you guys to know this is not just a slogan for us. It's not just a tagline. Uh, this is just a way that we want to express our commitment to love people with the ultimate expression of love. Here's what we believe. I believe God is working on people's hearts all the time. God is working in the hearts of our neighbors. He's working in the lives of people around us. And praying for your three is a way that we say, man, God, we want to be aware. I want to be available. If there's ever an opportunity for me to share the living water with someone else, I want to be open to that opportunity. So secondly, let me just speak to those who are investigating Jesus. So maybe you're someone who's here today and you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe you're someone who's still trying to figure out what you believe and uh, 
we say this all the time and just mean it so, mean it so deeply. We count it such a privilege that you would let us be part of your investigation. Just such a privilege. But I just want to let you know, um, if you're not a person who embraces the gospel, if you, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you're always welcome here. You are always welcome here. Even if you never believe what we believe, and even if you never embrace what we embrace, our love for you is not and should not be conditioned upon that. It's not. But at the same time, and I just need to tell you this, if I was to tell you that we don't care whether or not you know Jesus, that would just be a lie. It would be a lie. And, and why is that? It's because we believe that he's the living water. We believe he's what your soul needs, what, what you need, who you were created for more than anything else. That doesn't mean that if you've never embraced Christ, that that means that you're not welcome here. No way, that's not it at all. But I'd be lying to you if I said, I don't want that for you, because we do. And maybe even right now you're sitting in here and you've been investigating Jesus. And as you've been reading this story, maybe you even feel, you sense that God is working in your heart. You can see yourself in the story. And maybe for you, even right now, you, you can see that you're thirsty. You're thirsty. And maybe you've kind of put together that your attempts to try to satisfy that thirst in yourself have just left you thirsty time and time again, time and time again, time and time again. I just want you to know what's on offer to you. Living water is on offer to you. You don't have to clean up your life to come to Jesus. You don't have to. Listen, he knows you. He knows everything you've ever done. And you know what? This is the gospel. The gospel is that you are more messed up than you think you are. I am more messed up than I think I am. And you guys, I don't know about you, that's surprising to me because I think I'm pretty messed up. But I'm more messed up than I think I am, but at the very same time, I'm more loved and accepted in Jesus than I could imagine. And that is what's on offer to you. And so if you've never embraced the gospel, I would encourage you to do it today. Talk to God, pray to God. There's not a magic formula or ritual or seance. You can just talk to him. You can pray to him even right now and just say, God, I want your living water. I wanna surrender to you. And if you want to do that, I would encourage you to pray with me right now. And I would encourage you to make the songs that we sing, the lyrics that we sing, make that your prayer to God in these next moments. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we want to say thank you that you're the living water. We want to say thank you that you are the one who truly sees us, who truly knows us, who knows even the motivations behind the things that we do, even the motivations that are unseen to us, you see. And Jesus, we recognize that you're the only one who can truly fulfill those things. Thank you that you know us all the way through. And thank you that you loved us all the way to the cross and that you offer us living water to come to you, Jesus. And so, Father, we wanna to come to you yet again and we just wanna receive you into our hearts. And we, wanna, we just want to follow you and follow your way and surrender our ways to you. So I pray that as we sing these songs that we would worship and that we would pray to you, we'd interact with you together. We pray these things in Jesus' name.